Hello everyone, welcome to Historiansplaining. These lectures are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and other platforms. And if by any chance you can offer support, please go to my Patreon page, also under Historiansplaining, and the link should be in the description. And if you become a patron at any level, even just a dollar, you'll have access to patron-only podcasts, including my last one about the myth of political left and right. And sort of following along a similar theme, today I want to discuss a book that came out last year and made something of a splash and that a listener asked me to review and discuss, which is Why Liberalism Failed by Patrick Deneen, who is a professor at Notre Dame University in Indiana. And you may or may not have heard of this book. I've discussed it a little bit with a couple of people in person, including friends who who read it. Uh, But I tried to approach it with an open mind and a critical mind. And so there's quite a lot to say about this book, and I'll have to figure out as I go through my notes here exactly how to distill, uh, how to make sense of this book and its argument. You can probably tell from its title that it's a very ambitious book with a very far-reaching thesis uh, that really tries to explain a lot of our present-day social and political dilemmas in the West, especially the United States, you know, Deneen, like me, is an American, in terms of this overarching idea of liberalism uh, as it's existed over the past 500 years. So I'm going to go through and try to pick apart exactly what Deneen is arguing and how he's trying to apply his argument to all kinds of different problems, questions, dilemmas, and then discuss the strengths and weaknesses of the book as I see it and what I would take away from it, okay? Uh, How I would, uh, what conclusions I might draw or questions I might pull out after having read this book. Okay, so Patrick Deneen, it might sound off the bat as if he is simply a conservative, right? You might guess he falls into the Republican political camp and that he's criticizing left liberals uh, as we understand them in the U.S. today. Uh, You know, something that conservatives naturally love to do. Uh, That's actually not really the situation here. When he talks about liberalism, he means it in a broader sense, more in the way that political and moral philosophers use the term to mean something more like liberal humanism, okay? So the philosophy that developed historically in Western Europe, especially Great Britain, and spread to other parts of the world that emphasizes individual rights and freedoms. And in Deneen's view, this is the underlying ideology or mindset of both so-called liberals and conservatives in the modern West. So let me just start off with how Deneen presents 
what he's talking about when he says liberalism. He begins the introduction, quote, a political philosophy conceived some 500 years ago and put into effect at the birth of the United States nearly 250 years later was a wager that political society could be grounded on a different footing. And he goes on to lay out the basic components that make up the liberal worldview. Firstly, it has in anthropology, a theory of human nature. Quote, it conceived humans as rights-bearing individuals who could fashion and pursue for themselves their own version of the good life. Okay, and this is very important, whereas other traditional societies might define the good life communally by shared norms and customs. Liberalism gives that power to individuals. It then has a political and economic doctrine built upon that anthropology. Quote, opportunities for liberty were best afforded by a limited government devoted to securing rights, along with a free market economic system that gave space for individual initiative and ambition. And then finally, it justifies this doctrine and philosophy of society with a founding myth. Okay, like, like I've always been saying, you know, for months now, uh, Myths are how we sort of order the world around us. So liberals have a founding myth, and Deneen describes it in this way. Quote, political legitimacy was grounded on a shared belief in an originating social contract to which even newcomers could subscribe, ratified continuously by free and fair elections of responsive representatives. Right? And so this is a classic example of a myth, as I would describe it. Uh, that you create a, a story which you may or may not really believe is literally true, uh, but you create a sort of backstory to explain the world you live in. Government exists, government has authority, because in some mythical past, people came together and made an agreement, like a contract, to create this entity of government and give certain powers to it. Uh, and this myth, as Deneen points out, is continually reenacted over and over, right, in the form of elections and liberal democratic politics. You're always sort of uh, participating again in this metaphorical contract. Okay, so it has these basic kind of core components, and then Deneen also lists a few common features that we associate with liberalism in his, in his words. Limited but effective government, rule of law, an independent judiciary, responsive public officials, free and fair elections. And I would add, in addition to that, some other non-governmental institutions like a free press, you know, are associated with uh, liberalism. Okay, so this is the entity that Deneen is trying to critique, right? To, to say uh, is a sort of provisional experiment that has been tried out in certain societies and now, in his view, is failing. And as I said before, Deneen sees this expansive version of liberalism as really underlying all of political debate on all sides in mainstream Western politics, right? This is not a matter of a, a left or right ideology but they both fall into this liberal basket, okay? 
with only slight uh, variations. So in Deneen's argument, uh, the two major powerful institutions that shape people's lives in a liberal society are, on the one hand, the state, and on the other hand, the market. And Deneen believes that the two work together and go hand in hand, right? Markets support states and states protect markets. And the left and the right basically are just choosing which of these two powerful institutions they prefer. Uh, and both sides claim at least to be protecting individual rights and freedoms. They merely choose either to emphasize the market as in a vehicle of freedom against the oppression of the state or vice versa. They support the expansion of the power of the state as against the market. And he sums this up uh, in one of his more pithy statements uh, in the introduction. The state and the market have, in his words, worked together in a pincer movement to render us ever more naked as individuals. Our political debates mask this alliance by claiming that allegiance to one of these forces will save us from the depredations of the other. Our main political choices come down to which depersonalized mechanism will purportedly advance our freedom and security. So this is an indictment of both sides of this left-right, uh, you know, never-ending debate, and of what he believes are the basic underlying assumptions of both sides. He often uses metaphors to try to illustrate how pervasive the assumptions and ideology of liberalism are in modern life. And he uses metaphors such as, uh, it's like water for a fish, okay? Maybe reminiscent of the famous David Foster Wallace speech, you know, this is water. Uh, it's something that is all surrounding to the point that we don't even notice it's there. And he also often uses the metaphor of a computer with an operating system. Liberalism is like the operating system of society. It operates sort of unseen, under the surface, and in a way that's almost impossible to access or change. Also on page six, he describes uh, the assumptions of liberalism as being like iron cages in which we're trapped. And I think that that is a pretty clear echo of Weber, whom I, whom I mentioned before when talking about secularization, uh, that uh, science and the scientific worldview, he argued, are like uh, a stelhertes gehäuse, uh, an, an iron steel cage in which we're trapped. Okay. Deneen further argues that this liberalism in which we're all constantly immersed and that shapes our ideas has failed, right? There it is in the title. It's pretty blunt. Uh, liberalism has failed. And he describes our fraying social fabric, the breakdown of trust in modern liberal democratic society, the acrimonious social fissures, and the growing inequality, right, of uh, a small elite withdrawing from the rest of society that is progressively impoverished. And he describes in his introduction the deepening cynicism and lack of confidence uh, in government and political institutions in the modern West. And I would extend that and, and also add the growing distrust of organized institutions across the board 
including uh, the media, uh, academics, uh, organized religion, and so on. This forms the sort of basic challenge, I think, of his book, connecting these present-day social problems, the widespread cynicism, the dropping out, uh, lack of confidence in society and its institutions, the acrimonious divides, linking those present-day dilemmas to liberalism as such, to the basic core ideas of this centuries-old philosophy that has been popular in the West, particularly in the English-speaking world. Okay, So we have a, a sort of gap here that we have to bridge between liberalism, which emerged in the 16 and 1700s, or even has roots earlier than that, and our 21st century malaise, right? Is one, as Deneen would argue, is one the necessary or natural consequence of the other. And this is what Deneen repeatedly insists on, right? That, uh, that liberalism is fundamentally flawed, it cannot be fixed from within, and that, in a sense, its breakdown and failure were inevitable, Okay, and he invokes several different sort of styles of history uh, to make this, uh, to drive home this feeling of inevitability. Okay, sometimes he sounds like a declensionist historian. Okay, for example, uh, in the introduction early on, on page four, he suggests uh, that liberalism can seem like an entropy-defying perpetual motion device, a machine that would go of itself. But, he says, we should rightly wonder whether America is not in the early days of its eternal life, but rather approaching the end of the natural cycle of corruption and decay that limits the lifespan of all human creations. Now, this sort of declensionism is really woven through a lot of the book, but he doesn't really insist on it very firmly because... That's one of the lines of argument that really could vitiate <laughs> the whole book, you know, could make, could obviate the need for any argument. If you just say, well, decline is happening because it was faded, it's unavoidable, it had to happen. But rather, he wants to show that there's something fundamentally wrong that is bringing uh, liberalism down. Now, Okay, how does he diagnose exactly what is wrong with liberalism? And why is it leading to this sort of social breakdown and disillusionment? Well, as I said, he insists that the problem with liberalism cannot be cured with more liberalism. You can't just keep making people more free uh, and expect these social ills to go away. Uh, there's something wrong within the operating system itself, as he would say. It is not that liberalism has been imperfectly applied or that there are some lingering illiberal elements in society. That is not, not enough to explain it. Rather, he says, uh, again in the introduction, liberalism has failed not because it fell short, but because it was true to itself. It has failed because it has succeeded. As liberalism has become more fully itself, its inner logic has become more evident and its self-contradictions manifest. It has generated pathologies that are at once deformations of its claims, yet realizations of liberal ideology. 
And how did this happen? Well, mainly, his main accusation is that liberalism is wrong in its anthropology, in its understanding of human beings as fundamental, self-defining actors. Okay, and that by adopting this philosophy, liberalism somehow has reshaped people into that image. So let's see what he says later in the introduction. Liberalism supposed that our nature, in that state of nature that existed before civilization, law, and government, was free and independent. Ironically, but perhaps not coincidentally, the political project of liberalism is shaping us into the creatures of its prehistorical fantasy, meaning increasingly separate, autonomous, non-relational selves, replete with rights and defined by our liberty, but insecure, powerless, afraid, and alone. Okay, And his phrasing here, I think, is also reminiscent of Hobbes, who was not a liberal, but was in a way a forerunner of liberalism because he developed this idea of, of a social contract, a state of nature leading to a social contract. And of course, his most famous phrase is nasty, brutish, and short. You know, life in a state of nature is nasty, brutish, and short. So Deneen is implying here that that idea of life, of people as asocial, selfish, brutish, uh, and living in fear of one another, that that reality is actually being brought about by liberalism, that inculcating this idea of people as self-reliant, right, rights-bearing, free individuals makes us into that kind of a creature. And other philosophers have uh, made a similar arguments before and used the phrase, quote, homo economicus, economic man, the sort of greedy, selfish, self-seeking uh, isolated individual, that, that that's what modern institutions and ideas and practices have actually turned us into. And in Deneen's view, of course, that it that is not a realization of our nature, it's a deformation, a corruption of our nature. Okay. So what does Patrick Deneen see as the right response or solution to this dire situation as he as he describes it. Uh, well, basically, uh, localism, the fostering of strong local communities and practices. He vehemently swears off the creation of large-scale or overarching theories, you know, and he's careful to distance himself from uh, theories of life and history like Marxism, dialectical materialism. He also vehemently swears off Revolution, you know, almost as if he was afraid of what his colleagues at Notre Dame might think of this rather radical argument. He insists, quote, political revolution to overturn a revolutionary order would produce only disorder and misery. A better course will consist in smaller, local forms of resistance, practices more than theories, the building of resilient new cultures against the anti-culture of liberalism. And how does Deneen demonstrate this connection uh, that the flaws in liberalism led directly or unavoidably to our present crises? Well, he develops this argument over a series of seven chapters and a conclusion. And I'm just, uh, I'm just going to go through and discuss a bit about each of these chapters because he's really making a, a complex picture of modern reality as he sees it 
with a number of different arguments tackling different issues and topics that he clearly believes are immediately relevant to his readers in the 21st century. So I'll try not to go on for too long, but I, I want to sketch out basically what he's saying in, in each of these chapters. Okay, so for, firstly, chapter one, unsustainable liberalism. This is basically where he tries to show how lib, what he calls liberalism is fundamentally different and deficient compared to the earlier traditions of Western civilization. So liberalism, in his argument, displaces an older tradition of liberty as self-government. Okay, so the term liberty, it comes from Latin, libertas, and you can, you know, loosely translate it as just meaning freedom, but actually it had a much more complicated meaning before the rise of modern liberal humanism. Liberty was connected to habits and virtues learned through participation in government and the exercise of power, right? It involves skills and qualities of character that are necessary to resist tyranny, both tyranny by uh, authoritarian rulers and the tyranny of our lower, baser desires, right? So the, the ideal of liberty is not simply freedom of action. Rather, it is the development of good character, a good, fulfilling life, and of the common good, of, of a shared good life among a community. Liberalism replaced this older meaning of liberty with simply freedom of action, right? Being able to uh, be un unconstrained and unrestrained in one's behavior, and particularly liberation from established authorities, okay? Modern liberalism basically dropped belief in cultivation of character and virtue and replaced them instead with a so-called science of politics, right? A, a way to skillfully manipulate society and its laws in order to maximize individual freedom. Now, Deneen particularly attacks Machiavelli, the 16th century Italian philosopher, as the kind of first godfather of liberalism and argues that he was the first to, to replace this uh, belief system in the cultivation of character with a sort of crude, cynical science of politics. I suspect that Deneen hasn't really read much of Machiavelli's work outside of The Prince, right, which is his sort of short, pithy, fun book that's often assigned in high school. Uh, whereas Machiavelli's real masterwork, of course, is the discourses about republics. And uh, Machiavelli actually was a republican and believed very strongly and argued very strongly for virtue as necessary for a free society. So arguably, you could say, well, Machiavelli is really more of a kind of double thinking transitional figure who looked at politics maybe in both ways. So, you know, I would say he's maybe not really uh, giving Machiavelli his full credit. But that being said, this tradition of liberty, meaning participation in government, the ability to govern oneself, uh, that mode of thought certainly did continue through the 16 and 1700s and up through the time of the American Revolution. You know, they, if you read the writings of American revolutionaries, they're constantly talking about virtue and 
how virtue and liberty have to go hand in hand. They were very concerned with, uh, with the threat of tyranny, right? And they see liberty and tyranny as fundamentally opposed. But tyranny does not mean uh, people exercising power over you. It means a state or a government exercising power in which you have no say and in which you're not able to participate fully. Okay, and if we think of the sort of first revolutionary slogan of the Americans, uh, taxation without representation is tyranny, it's easy to misunderstand that and think, well, they, they just really hated being taxed. Uh, but that's not true. They were taxed constantly and sometimes at high rates by their own colonial assemblies. The problem, in their view, with new laws like the Stamp Act is that they were taxes being imposed by the parliament in which they had no vote and no voice, right? So their loss of liberty didn't mean loss of some money or even loss of freedom of action. It meant loss of a voice and the ability to participate as free people able to govern themselves collectively. So in that sense, I think Deneen is correct in describing this dramatic change in the meaning of liberty that we tend to forget even when we look back at our own history. Okay. So in Deneen's argument, this more truncated version of liberty, just meaning freedom from constraint, gradually took over and came to mean uh, the, quote, unfettered and autonomous choice of individuals. It taught people to see themselves simply as free choosers, or as other philosophers like Michael Sandel would say, as unencumbered selves. It encouraged privatism, and this is one of Deneen's biggest frustrations, that it reduced society down to, quote, a race idiotica, or affairs of idiots. Okay, so what does he mean by that? Well, a republic originally from Latin means the affairs or business of the people, things that people are concerned with and want to govern collectively through debate and decision-making. And the word idiot originally didn't just mean a dumb person. It specifically meant a person who didn't care about public affairs and was only self-interested and concerned with his own private good. Uh, so by calling our society a race idiotica, Deneen is making this kind of very cutely erudite quip that we've been turned into self-interested, privately focused people and kind of pushed out of public affairs by the philosophy of liberalism. It's also made us materialist. Uh, people uh, collect and enjoy and consume cheap goods, right? Cheap junk as a substitute for actual power and social equality as active citizens, right? And as inequality grows, this sort of greater abundance of cheap stuff uh, kind of papers over that social divide. People who have accepted the liberal worldview tend to see social ills like this and insist on simply always applying more liberalism, that somehow more liberation, more freedom, or more technology will uh, will solve these problems or will allay people's unhappiness or frustration. 
right? Technology is put forward as, as a solution, uh, conquering nature and somehow extracting more knowledge and more resources out of nature is supposed to substitute for an actual active public life, for a, a, a strong republic. And Janine argues, for this reason, uh, education in character and character formation is often replaced then with the teaching and use of technology as an alternative way of controlling people. Okay, and his example of this is how schools, rather than teaching character, instead are now installing surveillance cameras and simply watching people. Furthermore, the adoption of liberalism leads to the breakdown of intermediate institutions, institutions that used to order society other than the overarching state. And as he says uh, on page 30, quote, the loosening of social bonds in nearly every aspect of life, familial, neighborly, communal, religious, even national, reflects the advancing logic of liberalism and is the source of its deepest instability. Okay, so society becomes atomized, individualized, uh, and the sort of one remaining institution that commands people's loyalty is only the state. Only the state has the power to limit liberty uh, through law. And he refers again to Hobbes and his description of law as like hedges planted alongside a road. Uh, and their function is not to stop travelers or to tell them where to go, but only to contain them, to keep them uh, in the road. So positive law instituted by the state is like this, okay? And, and it uh, sections off people's spheres and ranges of activity but without guiding them in any particular direction. Other traditional sources of authority, such as clans, guilds, and religious sects, gradually wither away uh, and, and fall apart in this liberal environment. He describes liberalism as acting, quote, as a solvent on all social bonds. Yet, ironically, some vestiges of old social relationships and powers do remain, such as parents, the power of parents over children. Uh, and this presents a sort of strange paradox for liberal philosophy, right? If, if all authority is only legitimate, if it is chosen and consented to through a social contract, then why do parents have power over children? Modern day conservatives often talk and complain about family, uh, but really family structures, especially extended family, have already broken down, right, and been reduced down to just this truncated nuclear family of parents and children. Uh, and a very interesting illustration of this was put forward by Alastair McIntyre in a, a question and answer session that I once watched. And Deneen does not cite this, but it illustrates what I think he's talking about, where uh, the Catholic traditionalist philosopher McIntyre gave uh, a talk about about uh, his views, and then a student questioned him and said, don't you think that in present-day society our culture of marriage and family is being broken down, and that's a problem? And McIntyre responded by saying, well, when students of mine bring up this issue, I often turn to them and ask them, what do you think are the moral duties of aunts? And they always just look at me kind of flummoxed and have nothing to say. 
And that's an illustration of how even when people complain and pose as defenders of the traditional family, they really have already dropped out any thought about extended family and about the norms and responsibilities of extended family and are focusing now just down on the nuclear family. And furthermore, uh, the logic of liberalism in Deneen's argument changes the nature of those few relationships that do exist, like immediate family and friendships. And as he says in this chapter, quote, personal relationships become dominated by considerations of individual choice based on the calculation of individual self-interest and without broader consideration of the impact of one's choices upon the community, one's obligations to the created order, and ultimately to God. So in sum, in Deneen's view, liberalism is not just a political project, right? It might start out as a political philosophy or, or agenda, but it, quote, seeks to transform all of human life and the world by redefining humanity, by redefining people's relations to one another and their relationship to nature as a kind of adversarial relationship of extracting resources. Okay, his second chapter, Uniting Individualism and Statism, argues that, uh, that liber liberal individualism ironically actually goes hand in hand with the growth and power of the state. So as he argues, the chaos of society and the world under a liberal regime with the breakdown of traditional uh, character building, self-control, traditional relationships and communities has to then be countered by the growth of the state and of the law, right? Law alone is the guarantor of liberty, right? And so, hence, more liberty necessarily requires more law. The state, through its uh, exclusive power and authority, can dissolve other social groupings, okay, and has often done so in order to facilitate the growth of the market, right? So uh, old institutions like guilds and clans that might control land, money, the practice of a trade have to be uh, abolished or weakened, undermined by law in order to free goods and labor for the growing commercial market, okay? And he, he draws here particularly on Karl Polanyi and his book, The Great Transformation which tried to describe this process going on uh, in Britain, right? The breakdown of traditional relationships of tenancy or guild membership in order for the kingdom to be able to create a faster-moving and money-producing market. So social groups and norms, such as tribes and clans and their ownership of land, have to be abolished. And... Once this is achieved, then people's views of the world and themselves change. People come to believe in the market as a real, natural, eternal phenomenon. And as, in, as the way I would describe it as, quote, more real than reality. You know, that's something I discussed in my lecture about left and right, that people often create organizing concepts for describing the world and then come to believe that those are somehow more real than reality. And an example that I witnessed of this was when I took a graduate class in the history of economic, political economy, and you know, economic thought, where uh, 
professors were describing the workings of a market as this sort of uh, you know entity that distributes and equalizes and uh, has certain laws, you know, things like supply and demand. And a student asked, well, how can this apply? I work on Mexico. How can this notion of the market apply to Mexico when you've got this fragmented country separated by mountain ranges that make it very difficult for people to exchange goods or labor, uh, you know, freely the way this market concept imagines? And the professor responded, well, the mountains are a market distortion. <laughs> and I thought this was hilarious because, it, you know, the mountains are, are real. They're a, a real thing. <laughs> you can see them and walk up them and so on. Whereas the market is this abstract entity that scholars and philosophers sort of uh, dreamt into existence. So it's... It's not that the the mountains are a distortion of the market. It's the the market is the distortion, right? The market is the the abstract fantasy alternate reality. But this is the sort of thinking that Polanyi and Denin as well argue comes from liberalism and develops through liberalism. That these this sphere of free choosing individuals that we call the market uh, comes to seem like an inherent part of the universe. Uh, and and he quotes Polanyi famously arguing that, quote, laissez-faire was planned, right? The, the ability to have a market where goods are quickly and uh, exchanged quickly in an unhindered fashion had to be created and cultivated and protected by the state. Okay. Further, Deneen argues, uh, following from many other, uh, drawing on other philosophers like Hannah Arendt and Eric Fromm, he argues that uh, in this new liberal society where people are uprooted, they're moving, they're not tied by traditional relationships or communities, they then have to turn to the state as a source of meaning and loyalty and identity, right? Because it becomes, in a sense, the only larger uh, supra-individual body that you can belong to uh, is this sort of modern nation-state. And this paves the way then in their argument for totalitarianism, right? That it's sort of natural that totalitarian regimes like, uh, like fascism or Soviet communism would result from modern liberalism, right? Because the state becomes this sort of one distant focus of all loyalty and all meaning. Okay. And this argument might sound a little extreme, but I think it's actually backed up most effectively by a simple quote that Deneen drops in from Alexis de Tocqueville, the French diarist and philosopher who traveled through the United States in the 1830s, who wrote Democracy in America based on his observations. And it's remarkable how well this particular passage that Deneen quotes from Tocqueville accords with this basic argument that he's making and that these other 20th century philosophers are making. So I'll just read you this quote because I think really it's, it speaks for itself and it's probably more powerful than anything else in the book. So as Tocqueville wrote in Democracy in America, quote, In the United States, no man is obliged to put his powers at the disposal of another, and no one has any claim of right to substantial support from his fellow man. Each is both independent and weak. These two conditions, which must be neither seen quite separately nor confused, give the citizen of democracy extremely contradictory instincts. 
He is full of confidence and pride in his independence among his equals. But from time to time, his weakness makes him feel the need for some outside help, which he cannot expect from any of his fellows, for they are both impotent and cold. In this extreme, in this extremity, he naturally turns his eyes toward that huge entity, the tutelary state, which alone stands out above the universal level of abasement. His needs and even more his longings continually put him in mind of that entity, and he ends by regarding it as the sole and necessary support of his individual weakness. Thirdly, in Liberalism as Anti-Culture, Deneen argues that liberation from duties and social bonds necessarily also means liberation from the past and concern only with the present. And in Deneed's argument, this entity of culture is lost. Okay, he's, he's defining culture implicitly here. You know, this is an extremely ambiguous and vague term, which I tend to avoid using at all, and I'll probably talk more about that later. Uh, Deneen implies that he understands culture to be tradition and inherited wisdom, of a certain social group. And that is thrown out in favor of presentism, the forgetting of history, okay, the myth of the social contract, which I described before, fills in instead of a real understanding of the past. And this substitution is achieved through, quote, the dismantling of culture, the vessel of human experience of time. And he again quotes Tocqueville in this chapter, where Tocqueville argues that aristocracy, an institution that he supports, although with reservations, aristocracy, quote, links everybody from peasant to king in one long chain. Democracy breaks the chain and frees each link. Thus, not only does democracy make men forget their ancestors, but also clouds their view of their descendants and isolates them from their contemporaries. Each man is forever thrown back upon himself alone and there is a danger that he may be shut up in the solitude of his own heart. And Tocqueville further warns, as Deneen cites, that this isolation will lead to a brutish indifference towards the future. Okay, Uh, And he even warns specifically about the sort of new aristocracy that's growing up in modern commercial society. And Tocqueville at one point says, but the industrial aristocracy of our day when it has impoverished and brutalized the men it uses, abandons them in their time of crisis to public charity to feed them. Okay, and this this should sound maybe rather close to home, considering the current debates there have been about magnates like Jeff Bezos or the Waltons paying their own workers so little that they have to depend on food stamps. So Deneen argues that culture properly understood has been replaced with an anti-culture, somehow the opposite of culture, or other, or else a a homogenized monoculture. And at one point he actually corrects himself and says, modern life should be understood as mono-anti-culture. So he sort of starts tripping over himself in trying to define exactly what this vague entity is. But in this mono-anti-culture, in Deneen's view, uh, sexuality is used as a defining feature of the self, rather than of relationships or commitments. And he even briefly refers to the problem of 
campus sexual assault uh, and implies that liberation of the self and of the sexual self has simply led to anarchy and confusion. And he uses the same analysis also then on banking, okay, that the the sort of uh, Las Vegas-style free-for-all of Wall Street stems from a lack of sense of responsibility to community, okay? Traditional uh, values of financial property instead uh, have been replaced with a mentality that you should just get away with whatever you can. And in his view, this illustrates how narrow legalism, right, focus on law alone as the only force limiting and containing people's behavior, then leads people to abandon voluntary self-restraint and basically do whatever they can get away with. So traditional communities, in Deneen's view, however divided and repressive they might be, in fact, at least are built on thick relationships where people support one another and have a sense of uh, responsibility to others and of restraint. Fourth, in technology and the loss of liberty, he under he argues that technology undermines these thicker traditional relationships, replacing them instead with weaker networks of contacts. Okay, sort of from, you know, instead of a tribe, you have a, a Rolodex, okay? The first technology that he discusses under this rubric is actually the U.S. Constitution, which he argues is an embodiment of a science of politics, which served to unleash individual ambition and spur on commerce and economic growth. And it encouraged the replacement of communal ties with this enlarged orbit in which people could move for their personal gain. So he contrasts this new modern society, which he sees as shaped and framed by the U.S. Constitution, with the Amish, Okay, as his kind of classic counterexample. Amish communities are often misrepresented. They don't simply reject all new technology. Rather, before any technology is adopted in an Amish group, they ask, will this technology help the fabric of the community or hurt it? Okay, so whereas the Amish are looking for what is the social good served by a given technology, Liberal society at large only asks for its personal utility. Okay, so new technologies like, of course, the internet make us arguably more lonely, more selfish, and more disconnected, right? Facebook being a sort of classic uh, example of this. So individuals in liberal society can use technology, but they cannot choose or control how it changes the social environment around them, right? And he again repeats the point that people are bought off with gadgets, okay, as a way of covering over this sort of loss of control and loss of strong social relationships. And uh, this, I think, is reminiscent of what I heard Ralph Nader say in a recent interview, interestingly enough, where he argued that uh, if Marx were alive and working today, he wouldn't say that religion is the opiate of the masses. He would say that smartphones are the opiate of the masses sort of lowering people's ambitions, weakening their ties, and uh, kind of quietly persuading them to be passive. And he further points out that technology has the power to actually change our minds and personalities, right? Addiction to technology is common, uh, shorter attention spans, and in this way the tool has sort of taken over the people who were supposed to be using the tool, 
right? The tool has become the user of us, okay? And dystopian visions like The Matrix, where everyone is sort of locked in a fantasy reality, and Ready Player One, uh, these sorts of dystopian fantasies are coming true. And in this way, life imitates art. And and if you're wondering, Deneen does actually specifically cite uh, The Matrix, but there are others like it. And ultimately, this leads to individual loss of any control or power over society and the market. Okay, And he calls the, the sort of economic market system we're living in a Frankenstein monster that has sort of taken over the society that created it. And within that uh, market society, there's a kind of constant Darwinian race for advantage and survival and no sense of security. So fifthly, in Liberalism Against Liberal Arts, Deneen argues that this power of market society has reshaped education. Okay, and he begins by saying that ultimately... Liberalism destroys liberal education since it begins with the assumption that we are born free rather than we must learn to become free. Right? So in his view, traditionally, education, especially liberal education, meant uh, practice in the skills needed for life as a free person. Okay? Discipline and control over one's lifestyle while in a college or seminary, led to the ability to restrain one's bad appetites and to stand up both to one's lower impulses and stand up to power. So the traditional focus on morality, virtue, and religion have all been drained out of education, replaced with only practical skills for market use. Okay, So simply uh, education simply as vocational training is what pre-modern people would have called servile education, right? Education for the sake of, of being a servant of someone else, not of being a free, independent person. The modern research university focuses on production of knowledge in order to control the world through technology, military power, and so on. While older courses, such as the great books, are attacked and rejected on all sides, right? So modern left people might attack great books curricula as repressive and racist, whereas the right attacks them as being useless and impractical, right? And wants to replace them with simply uh, occupational skills. So Janine points out that many academics who have discussed uh, causes of the financial crisis, right, the flaws in laws or institutional organization, none of them has addressed that most of the perpetrators who caused this financial disaster were highly educated, particularly Ivy League graduates, and do not acknowledge that hence some of the blame for this disaster should fall on those institutions of higher learning because they failed to teach character, honesty, integrity, poverty, Okay, and this, this, I think, is probably his most important and powerful point in this chapter. And in Deneen's description, the products of modern universities are roving, placeless, deracinated, sort of white-collar professionals who go chase after white-collar jobs in various locations and do not serve as servants or pillars of communities. 
Uh, this argument resonates with other stories that I've heard, such as uh, you know, a Native American from a reservation in the American Southwest who did go to college and described how in his youth, uh, Native Americans in his community were constantly saying, you should go to college and get those tools so that you can come back to the reservation and help improve life here. But he didn't. Uh, when people from those kinds of impoverished and rural communities get an education, they then move to a city where there are white-collar jobs. They don't go back. They simply disappear, and you have a kind of internal brain drain. And finally, Deneen argues that the emphasis of modern education on critical thinking actually feeds this pattern, right? Critical thinking is, in his view, a kind of code for lack of attachment to community or traditional values, okay? and uh, encouragement to join a kind of disconnected, roving, international class. So in Chapter 6, The New Aristocracy, Deneen argues that this form of education actually is designed to create a new kind of elite. Okay? Colleges act sort of like strip mining. They pull off the best material from various local communities and then move it to somewhere far away to be used for someone else's economic gain. Uh, while meanwhile, non-college graduates left behind in these societies are sinking further into poverty. Okay? So the graduates who do get college educations form a new kind of vagabond, roving elite separated from the rest of society and crowded into a few expensive cities. So education serves as a kind of sorting mechanism for separating winners and losers in liberal society. So not only intelligent people, but also people with certain sorts of personalities prone to movement, uh, risk-taking, self-interestedness, materialism. These are the people who rise to the top and join this new elite. And he argues that this is in fact the realization of an age-old liberal dream going back at least to Jefferson and his envisioning of a natural aristocracy of society that would be created by his university. So this is all arguably, in Deneen's view, in line with classic liberal thinking, right? And the classic justification that you can see in liberal philosophy for the existence of an elite and of inequality, running from Adam Smith through Mill and up to John Rawls, is that everyone will become more prosperous, right? A sort of rising tide will lift all boats, that if some, the most talented, the most brilliant, are lifted up into positions of power and privilege, that will somehow benefit everyone else. And furthermore, today, this uh, separation of an elite from the rest of society is further justified by mobility, the idea that uh, a few people from the bottom will have an opportunity to rise to the top, and hence it's okay that people are unequal. And Deneen actually cites a particular philosopher, Tyler Cohen, uh, who recently argued that governments should embrace this reality and create favelas, sort of, you know, crowded, squalid, poor neighborhoods, and let the less intelligent people who are left behind sort of live in, in these conditions, but buy them off by giving them internet access and hence the ability to live in a kind of technological fantasy alternative world. So in this way, this is an example of an author who's openly advocating uh, a reality like The Matrix or 
Ready Player One, where you sort of, uh, you know, the lower classes are just kind of given their fantasy as a substitute. Now, even if we do credit this liberal argument that everyone will benefit from overall economic prosperity, uh, regardless of where they fall in this winner and loser race, uh, still this requires constant growth and production, and hence the need to always be creating new technologies and constantly be squeezing more and more resources out of the planet. And Deneen, of course, questions how long can this go on? Uh, and he points to climate change as an illustration of how the limits of what can be sort of stripped out of the natural environment are being reached. And hence, this sort of uh, liberal fantasy of constant growth and prosperity can't go on forever, and someone will have to eventually make sacrifices. And finally, uh, Deneen discusses, finally, you know, after really leaving out any close examination of liberal philosophical texts, he does examine a few major philosophers. He discusses Federalist Paper Number 10, you know, the kind of the most famous argument for the U.S. Constitution. And Federalist Number 10 argues that government ought to be more distant uh, from the people at large, that it ought to protect a sort of good elite, and that it should protect the differences among the faculties of men, and hence the differences in property that result from these differences in faculties. So, you know, it's true, if you, if you look at number 10, as I've done, it's basically saying pretty bluntly that government should function to protect uh, the wealthy elite. Uh, he then also goes to Mill, the Victorian British philosopher who wrote On Liberty, where he argues that a small number of geniuses should engage in, quote, experiments in living that will set them apart and lift them above the rest of society, that they should be freed from the tyranny of custom, and that this new kind of meritocratic elite should eventually overthrow custom and uh, take control of society. Mill at one point even explicitly says, persons of genius are always likely to be a small minority. Uh, and this is worth questioning. You know, why is that? Why do we implicitly accept this notion that there's, there's a kind of small set of, of brilliant people that will naturally rise above everyone else. Um, and Mill further argues that the highly educated should have more votes than everyone else and should have disproportionate political control and should use this control to basically force the lower classes to be more productive, to spend less time on things like leisure or art or worship and just, you know, be more productive workers. So... There is this kind of long line, this long uh, strand of liberal justifications for inequality, uh, economic inequality, political inequality. And Deneen specifically argues, finally, towards the end of this chapter, that, quote, liberal politics was conceived as a defense of those inequalities. And he argues that current society believes in a so-called noble lie that uh, the wealthiest, the most powerful are the most deserving, have the greatest merit because of their intelligence or their good decisions. And they can retroactively apply these justifications to rationalize why some people have so much more power than others. 
Okay, so this is a pretty ugly picture, of course, that Deneen is arguing by his, uh, his interpretation of these liberal philosophies and of modern society. And he, he argues for the opposite viewpoint, okay, that custom and even prejudice, um, using Mill's word in quotation marks, prejudice, custom and prejudice can serve to restrain ambitions and desires of those few powerful people and to instill in them social norms and a sense of responsibility. And he's using prejudice, this word, in the sense that Mill did, not to mean uh, bias against a certain group of people like racism, but the sort of uh, inherited preferences in terms of lifestyle, okay? So these traditional biases, he believes, can uh, restrain the power and the arrogance of ambitious people who want to rise to the top of society and counterbalance this extreme inequality in modern society. Okay, finally, in the, the degradation of citizenship, Deneen finally uh, argues that the phrase liberal democracy is an oxymoron, that the basic underpinnings of liberalism are anti-democratic, that in modern liberal democratic societies, small elites hold power, and most affairs, such as affairs of business and industry, are kept out of public debate, right, removed from the sphere of democratic power. Privatism is encouraged or even enforced. Democratic elections, in his view, are theatrical and have no real effect on people's lives or on the workings of society. And uh, they merely achieve a sort of veneer of legitimacy by consent, right? By, by voting in a democratic election, you are somehow implicitly accepting power relations as they stand. Deneen also points out that liberal centrists are often mobile, uh, disconnected from society, like the elite he was describing, and that they tend to prefer open borders and free movement of people, free trade, uh, all of which, again, weaken the power of democratic organs over uh, economics and migration, and that centrists are willing to oppose democracy when it threatens those economic interests, okay? And he, he describes people as anti-democratic liberals. And although he does not cite this, this actually is supported somewhat by current research that centrists, uh, political centrists in the United States and some countries in Europe tend to have the lowest opinion of democracy, they, they tend to express less confidence and less commitment to democracy in principle than people on the left and right. Uh, but rather than, than citing these surveys, he does point to Jason Brennan, a philosopher at Georgetown University, who wrote a book recently called Against Democracy, where he argues for a so-called epistocracy, a sort of rule by the smart. Uh, and this view according to Deneen, is in line with progressive social science, especially political science, which was conceived in the early 20th century as a way of creating a professional administrative elite to take the reins of power away from the public. So Deneen argues that, finally, that citizen ignorance and disengagement from politics are, in fact, effects of liberalism. So liberalism, in his view, fosters a self-interested, disaffected citizenry, 
Uh, and he goes back again to Federalist Paper Number 10, where uh, Madison argues that public desires should be passed through the medium of a chosen body of citizens who will know better than the public the true interests of their country. Okay, so, so he's already advocating a kind of epistocracy, a rule by the smarter upper class, and argues for the insulation of government against popular influence. And finally, there's a loss of the older tradition of local face-to-face negotiation in local communities. Okay. So in his conclusion, called Liberty After Liberalism, Deneen argues that the current situation is a systemic failure of liberalism, that uh, the noble lie that justifies the power of a small elite is no longer believed by most people, But elites still cling to this noble lie out of self-deception because of their self-interest, that they want to protect their whatever it is, their wealth, their power, their social prestige as part of this elite. And Deneen warns that this whole system may soon collapse and possibly be replaced by something much worse or more authoritarian. Okay, so that's bleak enough. So what does Deneen recommend we do about it? Well, in a brief discussion in his conclusion, he makes three recommendations. One, uh, we should acknowledge the good achievements of liberalism, though he doesn't say specifically or in detail what those are. Two, that we should give up on ideology, or in his words, outgrow the age of ideology, right? Give up this uh, quest to organize society around some central theory. And lastly, he argues building up practices of local self-government, okay? Uh, Practices that, quote, foster new forms of culture, household economics, and civic polis life. Although he does not specify what these practices are or how they should be fostered. And this, he believes, will lead eventually to a new theory, a sort of new philosophy of power, government, and society that can grow out of these practices. So he calls for a return of what he calls culture, the set of stories and practices that people develop through time. And he advocates for countercultures, or in his word, counter-anti-cultures, that will return to this sort of way of life. Okay, Okay, so that's where Deneen's book leaves off. And what I want to do now in the second part is pull back away from the ins and outs of his argument, and look at what I think are the main strengths and weaknesses of the case he's trying to make, and then further step away and say, how would I evaluate what he's calling liberalism? What do I think about it? What can we, what sense can we make of it? And in a sense, you could say kind of, Uh, butt in and say how I might have written his book. (laughs) If I had taken that title, what sort of line of argument might I have followed? So if you're interested in that kind of evaluation and deeper philosophical examination, uh, please go on to part two. Thank you. Thank you.